if you have your Bibles, I do invite you. We're um, turning to the Old Testament um, this morning at the book of Ezra. As we arrive um, at this celebration of America's Independence Day, on the one hand, we have a lot to be um, uh, to celebrate, for which to be thankful. We continue to enjoy um, great freedoms. Um, we have great privileges that most people in the world uh, would love, can only dream about. And even with more than a year of COVID-19 and lockdowns, um, you know, the Lord has been gracious to us. And on the whole, uh, the, the country's experienced great prosperity over the last year. But there is um, another side of, to this equation. As we look across the country and we consider its moral condition, it's the strength of our unity, um, I think most would likely conclude that we are more fractured and divided than ever. We could also make the case that, morally speaking, that uh, we, we see ourselves standing in the midst of rubble, a direct result of America turning away from the triune God of the Scriptures, putting their trust in all kinds of idols. At the heart of that is the, the idol of mammon, uh, that is money, um, but that's you know, we are a very polytheistic nation when it comes to what we ultimately place our trust in. And so for that reason, I thought this text from Ezra would be of interest to us today. Um, our text this morning is taken, again, from Ezra. I'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Would you please stand just out of respect for the reading of the Word of God? When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters uh, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrrhenians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, you are the one who defines and reveals truth. Be gracious to us this morning and reveal through your Holy Spirit the truth that alone brings satisfaction to our weary souls. For the sake of Jesus, amen. You may be seated.
Our passage um, just begins with the, the children of Israel. They're returning to their homes. They've returned to their surrounding towns and villages of Judea. The people are united um, as they then gather together. They're called to gather together in Jerusalem. And so um, to understand this chapter, we need to do a little history. So in 586, so we're now, you know, 586 years uh, roughly before the birth of Jesus. Um, in 586, the, the Babylonian king, um, Nebuchadnezzar, sent his armies against Jerusalem. And because of a revolt, a rebellion uh, uh, from the, the king of Israel, um, of Judah, um, he, he sent his armies down, uh, he wiped out Jerusalem, he uh, pulled it down to the ground, its walls, its temple, um, except for a small group that were just this little remnant left behind. Um, all the peoples who were left alive after this invasion were um, captured, and they were scattered uh, throughout the Babylonian Empire. Well, that takes us then to um, 539 um, uh, B.C., in 539, God raised up the great Persian king, Cyrus. And King Cyrus defeated the Babylonians. A year later, in 538, King Cyrus, as had been prophesied um, about two centuries earlier uh, through the, the prophet Isaiah, Cyrus issues a decree. And, and so, I mean, this is just fascinating, just from a purely historical um, uh, uh, context. Israel had experienced a national death. That's what exile was. You, you don't come back. It, nations do not come back after they are exiled um, as Israel was. But in 538, as had been prophesied, um, King Cyrus issues his famous decree that the Israelites uh, would be permitted to return to their homeland. They would be permitted to uh, repopulate their ancestral towns and villages that made up what was um, originally the, the southern kingdom, that kingdom of Judah. So they, they went back to their ancestral towns in that region of Judah, and the key city of that region um, was Jerusalem. So that's in 538. 537, after that, that decree is issued, the, the Jews then make this first wave. The, these exiles make a first wave return to the land of, um, uh, of Judah. And um, as they go back there, and there are two key leaders um, that are referenced here in chapter 3, and that is their governor. The governor was Zerubbabel, now, which is a great name, you know. Why aren't there any Zerubbabel? You know, all these biblical names, no Zerubbabel. Um, I guess it's a mouthful. I don't know. Um, but there it is. So if you, uh, that's a, just free advice. Um, but Governor Zerubbabel was actually, he was a descendant of David. And he would have been the next in line to be king. But he can't be king because they're under the thumb of the Persians. They're under the thumb of King Cyrus. So he's, he's given this um, uh, title as governor. And then there's the high priest. Um, high priest is uh, Jeshua. Um, it's a little confusing. And um, if you're reading through Zechariah, um, it, his name is Joshua, but it's the same person. Here it's just, you know, a difference of a vowel. Um, it's Jeshua. But both, and also just um, as an aside, the names Jeshua and Joshua, essentially the same name. They're the Old Testament version of 
Jesus. So Jesus in Hebrew was Yeshua. Um, and we just, in English, we pronounce the J, uh, a hard J. So we, we say Jeshua. The Jews found when they returned to their land that the land was ravaged. Uh, their city, their, their glorious temple, built by Solomon, lying in rubble. And of importance for us is how the Jews began the work of rebuilding their city, how they began the work of rebuilding their culture, how they began the work of rebuilding their way of life. And this is of utmost importance to us today as we face similar challenges in our time. In our time, we've seen the foundations of our most important institutions being attacked and undermined, especially the institutions of traditional marriage family. In fact, you know, you read these, these articles about marriage um, and the formation of families that we are at an all-time low in the history of our nation in terms of just the formation of families, not even families sticking together. You know, we're not even talking. We're not even including the divorce rate here. We're just talking about the formation of families um, at an all-time low. We see not only the, the crumbling of, of the family, we see the crumbling of the church. We see declines, especially as you go into the younger generations of those who um, uh, describe themselves as, uh, as being Christian or being born again. Um, attendance rates begin to decline as you move from the older to the younger um, generations. We've also witnessed a, a kind of bombardment on Christian morality and ethics, especially in the area of sexual morality. There's more confusion on issues of gender and sexuality than ever before. And what we are seeing is not simply bad behavior. We're not just seeing, you know, um, uh, people uh, revolting against the rules. What we see is a redefining, a, redef- a redefinition of morality. Altogether, the creation of a new uh, morality. And so, as we come then to Ezra chapter 3, um, it's of interest to us because, though, the, you know, culturally speaking, it wasn't quite the same situation, they were in a place where they had to rebuild. So, that's my connection. So verse 1 tells us that it was in the seventh month that would most uh, correspond with our September of what is still believed to be 537 B.C. So if they came in the spring, this is just within months of this first wave of exiles returning to the land, returning um, to to their, their villages and their towns and to the city of Jerusalem. And uh, we're told that they assemble as one man, to Jerusalem. They were prepared to leave their fields. They were prepared to leave all the, the long, you can imagine the lengthy to-do lists that they had on their refrigerators of things that had to be done, that had to be accomplished. And nevertheless, um, they gathered together in Jerusalem. They were united in their purpose and in their earnest desire to see their city, to see their land rebuilt. And you can only imagine how much there was to do. And surely they were eager to start doing, to get going. We can feel that, just that, that we've got to band together. We've got to just immediately start building. 
But before they can get to work, before they can get to their doing, they have to get their priorities straight. They had to understand that their first priority was to establish wholehearted biblical worship. That's where you begin. That's where they began. In verses 2 and 3, we read what happens when they assemble. The first thing that is done is the rebuilding of the altar. Under the leadership of Jeshua and Zerubbabel, the altar is set in place. And we go on to read that after decades of exile, after being, you know, an exile throughout the Babylonian empire, there is a reinstitution of the, sacrif- of the sacrifices, of the feasts that were stipulated by the law of Moses and of special emphasis. It's emphasized over and over in this passage is the reinstitution of a, one specific sacrifice, which is the burnt offering, and, and we'll come back to the burnt offerings. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Um, and again, you can just imagine, where's a shovel? Where's a hammer? Let's get going. That's not where they begin. They begin with worship. And this is not a unique occurrence in the Old Testament. This isn't just like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of cherry picking. Um, back in Genesis, when the flood ends and Noah and his family um, uh, depart from the, the ark, they disembark from the ark, we read in Genesis 8, uh, 20 and 21 this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. When Abraham, so now we're fast forwarding past Noah, we we come to Abraham. Abraham is called to leave his homeland and to enter into a land that he has never been to before. And so um, in obedience to God's calling, Abraham leaves his homeland. He sojourns into Canaan. And then we read this in Genesis chapter 12, 7 and 8. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he, Abram, built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And the passage goes on to say that after he builds this altar, he moves to another location. And there, the very first thing he does is he builds another altar. He is establishing the priority of worship, just as Noah had before him. In 1 Kings, we come to the story of Elijah the prophet. And Elijah is ministering in a time of extreme spiritual decline. The culture of the northern kingdom has become um, extremely idolatrous in their committed worship of the god Baal, along with other gods. So it's of note that when um, Elijah goes about to begin this, this project of, of seeing change take place in his own country, 
He doesn't look at a political solution. That's not where he starts. He calls, he, he's issue, he begins with this issue of worship. He goes to war with the idols. He, he calls the people to Mount Carmel. And there he has his famous confrontation with the, the prophets of Baal. But what is it that he does? Well, in 1 Kings 18.30, we read this. This is why they're on Mount Carmel. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. The worship of Yahweh had been undermined. It had um, it had been thrown down. And before he starts with any kind of cultural projects, Elijah addresses the issue of worship. Who is the true God? He rebuilds the altar. Likewise, it may be our immediate desire to roll up our sleeves, to get to work fighting for the soul of our country along uh, certain cultural or political lines. But when we begin there (laughs) with doing, you know, it's like you see a rotten fruit tree, a rotten apple tree, And you think, the way I'm going to deal with that rotten tree is I'm going to just begin picking up the apples off the ground. But that doesn't deal with the tree. Culture and morality are always informed. They're always determined by worship. You know, and I'm thinking, too, of John the Baptist when he's preaching to the Israelites um, of his time, the Israelites who were in need of uh, repentance, He says in Matthew 3.10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. He's not, John the Baptist isn't just picking fruit up off the ground, rotten fruit, you know, pitching it in the garbage can. No, he's like, no, the axe has to be laid at the roots before we will see change. And that's why he's preaching about uh, returning to the Lord in wholehearted faith, wholehearted repentance. The cultural disintegration we are witnessing is the natural outgrowth of idolatry and false worship. We worship money, and then we're surprised by all the greed and all the envy that we see around us. We celebrate the liberation of the self. We worship uh, our personal independence and autonomy. And then we're shocked by the increasing hostility and revolt against God's laws and morality. Shocked, I say. No, that's what you expect when we turn away from true worship. When we turn away from the true God, we worship ourselves or we worship the things of this world. You can't have Christian morality. You can't have Christian ethics without Christian faith. You can't have it without the blessing of God. And you can't have strong Christian faith and the blessing of God apart from whole hearted worship. In addition, we learn something about the nature of this worship in verses 3 and 4, where we learn that the worship under Jeshua was characterized by complete consecration. This is where the burnt offerings, um, this emphasis on the burnt offerings comes in. In verse 3, 
um, what we see here is they set the altar in its place. And then it talks about they're surrounded. Even though they've returned to their homeland, they're still surrounded by enemies. And so what it says is, is that for fear, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And so what they, they begin to institute as part of their worship, they offered burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord. They kept the Feast of the Booths, as it is written, and again, they offered the daily burnt offerings. And then in verse 6, it, it returns to, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Over and over, we see this emphasis on the burnt offering. Well, the Jewish people had um, roughly, there were, there were five different um, sacrifices. And, and out of those five, they're, they're kind of like these three that were, that had um, a kind of a distinctiveness to them. Um, the first one is the guilt offering, and, and the guilt offering was an offering for sins. It was a, uh, it was a, it, it focused on atonement, and and all the sacrifices they symbolize atonement just in terms of the shedding of blood, but the guilt offering was focused on on guilt, and then you had these burnt offerings, and we think of the burnt offering like a guilt or a sin offering, but that's not really the idea that was at the heart of the burnt offering. The emphasis of the burnt offering was not on uh, the, the creature, the animal that was burned completely on top of the altar. The emphasis was on the smoke that ascended to God. And the, the picture of the burnt offering was this was an offering of consecration. It was an offering that whereby in the giving of an animal, and it was very costly because none of the animal was held back as in um, other offerings. In this case, the entire offering is burned up. And the symbolism is that all that I am, all that I have is yours, Lord. And worship, what we are meant to say is, is, it's not, you know, sometimes I think we make a mistake. We say, well, I gave my two or three hours to worship on a Sunday morning. I can check that off of my to-do list. I've done my duty. And that means the rest of the day and the rest of the week are mine. <laughs> but that's not the idea of worship. When we come and worship, when we, you know, um, there's an opportunity after the service to offer tithes and offerings. Um, when we pay attention to the word of God, we're not meant to see that, oh, I can just, I did my duty and I gave God his part and now the rest is mine. No, it's all God's. And, and it's like when we give our tithe, you know, we, we recommend 10% that when we give the 10%, we're not saying, okay, that was God's and then the 90% is mine. No, what we're saying is the 10% is representative of all that I have, that all that I possess, that it all belongs to God. And that's what the burnt offering symbolizes. That's what it represents. And so before they ever, so they build the altar before they build the temple, before they build their church building, before they even lay the foundations to their church building, the altar is set up so that they can worship. And at the heart of that worship are these burnt offerings, these offerings of consecration. And they have to get this right. They have to understand that God is my God. 
In him will I serve. In him will I put, put my trust. And they have to get this right before they can ever begin laying the foundations to the temple or moving even further outwards and rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city, rebuilding their culture and their way of life. If they don't get the worship right, everything else is going to be cockeyed. It will not build correctly. It will crumble over time. And so what Ezra and the scriptures are showing us is that it all begins with worship. In verse 11, I didn't read this, but there's a second part that we see, I think it just want to highlight about their worship. And there we read that they sang responsively, and this is about a half a year later. They have um, saved up, they've set aside um, things, and they've laid down the foundations, and, and they're worshiping at this point. And in verse 11, it describes it this way. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And then here's what they sang. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people, it says, shouted with, with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This is just another principle even as they're laying the foundations, they're still surrounded by ruins. They're still surrounded by rubble. They have not been back in the land for very long at all. And what are they singing? They're singing with hearts full of thanksgiving and full of praise. They are thanking God for his goodness, and they are doing it in the midst of ruin. And this should teach us something. When things, when God is prospering us, yes, We need to come and we need to sing and praise God for his goodness and for his steadfast love that endures forever. And when we're we're surrounded by destruction, when we're surrounded by ruins, when we're surrounded by rubble, we come together, we praise God, and we give him thanks, and we praise him because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And this is characterizes this heartfelt, joyful worship to the Lord has to characterize our worship. If we would see the kinds of changes that I think most of us long to see um, in the surrounding world. Before our work can move out horizontally to the city walls, we need to make sure that our prayers, our praises, our our heartfelt thanksgiving is going up vertically. And we need to see that out of their heartfelt, biblically informed worship flowed the successful rebuilding of the temple and of the walls in the midst of incredible adversity. The worship comes first, but it doesn't end with worship. That's not what we're saying. We worship and our job's done. No, that's not what, we, no, that's not what Pastor Lanning was saying. It begins with worship, but it doesn't end with worship. Worship flows into the lives that begin to be centered on God, on Christ, and his law. And as this translates into the New Testament, the sacrifices, all the the guilt offering, the burnt offering, and then lastly, the peace offering, I didn't describe that, they all point to Christ. And this is another theme that in the New Testament then, biblically informed worship is Christ-centered worship 
through and through. He's the one who dies for us. He's the one who was consecrated fully in a way that we can never be consecrated. He does this in our place. And the peace offering, which was a shared meal, well, even that is what we now accomplish as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, this shared meal, celebrating the ultimate sacrifice that all the Old Testament sacrifices point to, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus himself. As they begin to redirect their lives, um, they first, they institute the feasts. They institute worship. Um, and another, another way of putting this, it describes the Feast of Booths that they immediately celebrate here. The Feast of Booths, or it's sometimes referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles, was just a celebration of the Exodus, how God saved them out of Egypt. And so part of what they do is they begin to reorganize their calendars. They reorganize their, the way they look at time to be consistent with redemption, consistent with our living as um, under God's uh, supremacy, under his lordship. They reinstitute a church year calendar. And of course, then this does lead, um, uh, true worship leads to solid foundations. They lay the foundations to the temple. It leads to solid building. We read that as soon as this worship begins, they're able to start collecting money. They set aside resources for skilled craftsmen for the purchase of building materials. And within six months, they are able to begin the work. Now, because of extreme hostility, which we should not be surprised by, the world hates potent worship. They experience extreme hostility. It took them 20 years to rebuild the temple. And then about 80 years later, see, this took time. It took decades. 80 years later, they would finally rebuild the wall under Nehemiah. There'd be kind of the second wave of of exiles coming in, finally. um, And that's Ezra's on the scene there too. and, And they're able to finally rebuild, but it begins with worship. And so we must not lose heart. On this Independence Day, we need to understand that the most potent thing that we can do is to offer ourselves fully to the Lord in wholehearted, biblically informed worship. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your truth. We know, Lord, that the truth of your word even as it is often mocked or ridiculed or made light of, Lord, that truth stands like granite. And over time, it it just cannot be ignored. And so may we not lose heart. May we stand on your truth. And may we find our redemption. May we find our hope solidly placed in you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, spirit. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.